We are entering a new section, same division of Elijah's ministry, but now we're going to go through a whole bunch of miracles. So the first thing that we saw was God's ability to use Elisha to defeat political enemies. Now we're going to see God using Elisha to bring healing and provision for his people. So we've seen God using Elisha on external enemies. Now we're going to see God providing internally for his people. So there's a series of miracles here that are going to begin to happen. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now a wife of one of the prophets appealed to Elisha for help, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant was a loyal follower of Yahweh. Now the creditor is coming to take away my two sons to be his servants. So she's like, look, my husband was one of the sons of the prophets. But she specifically emphasizes, and you know, Elisha, that he was loyal to Yahweh. Almost like there's an implication not all the sons of the prophets are. So I'm going to make it clear that he was one of the good ones. Which means his death is not a judgment from God. Remember, husbands dying, leaving widows and children behind was considered judgment from the gods. But if he's a prophet and he's loyal to Yahweh, there was no reason for God to kill him. Now the creditors, I have all this debt. Now, it may not be debt like I'm an irresponsible person financially. It could just be I have no husband to help me survive anymore and I can't pay the bills anymore. So the creditors are coming to enslave my sons. And my son's slavery is going to pay off the debt. But that's scary. Help me, Elijah. Elisha. So Elisha said to her, what can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? She answered, your servant has nothing in the house except for a small jar of olive oil. He said, go and ask all your neighbors for empty containers. Get as many as you can. Go close the door behind you and your sons. Pour the olive oil from that one jar into all the containers. Set aside each one when they have filled up. So she left him, closed the door behind her and her sons. And as they were bringing the containers to her, she was pouring the olive oil. And when the containers were full, she said to one of her sons, bring another container. But he answered her, there are no more. Then the olive oil stopped flowing. And she went and told the people, and he said, go, sell the olive oil, repay your creditor, and then you and your sons can live off the rest of the profit. Now, in this same way, he is providing for her as a widow, just like Elijah had provided for a widow. And just like Elijah had multiplied the flour and oil for bread, now he's multiplying just the oil. Now, this is significant, too, because this oil, oil is incredibly expensive. Olive oil can go for a higher price than even wine can, especially extra virgin olive oil. And so this oil was used in several ways. It was used in baking. It was used as a a healing, a medicine that you would rub on your skin and that kind of stuff. It can be used for burning oil lamps and that kind of stuff. Oil was incredibly expensive, incredibly practical in many different ways. But symbolically speaking in the Bible, oil always represents the blessings and the spirit of Yahweh. And notice that the spirit of Yahweh and the blessings of Yahweh are being abundantly poured out for this widow. And she fills it all up and he says, sell it, pay off all your debts. And then notice what he says after that. And then live on the rest. That means that she had made so much money that she was able to pay all the debt and have enough to live the rest of her life before her sons were old enough 
to get their own jobs, their own land, and start taking care of the family. So this is an incredible blessing of God for her. But notice the other difference, too, is that first miracle with Elijah was for a widow outside the land. But this miracle is for Israel, meaning that Israel will be accepted again one day. Verse 8 of chapter 4. One day Elisha traveled to Shunem, where a prominent woman lived. Now, prominent, you should understand her as extremely wealthy and politically well-connected. She insisted that stop for a meal. So whenever he was passing through, he would stop in there for a meal. And she said to her husband, Look, I am sure that the man who regularly passes through here is a very special prophet. Let's make a small private room in the upper room and furnish it with a bed, table and chair, and lamp. And when he visits us, he can stay here. So notice she's married, but she's a prominent and wealthy politically connected woman, which means she has some kind of position of power and her husband is connected to her in that kind of way, which is very rare in the ancient world. So she says, look, this prophet comes through all the time. We provide him a night to stay, but he comes through so often. Let's actually like turn the spare bedroom into his personal bedroom and make sure that he knows he doesn't have to ever stay anywhere else. This place is always available to him. She wants to be a blessing to the prophet of God. One day, verse 11, Elisha came for a visit, and he went into the upper room and rested. He told his servant Gehazi, this is the first time his servant is mentioned by name, ask the Shunammite woman to come here. So he did so, and she came to him. Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her, look, you have treated us with such great respect. What can I do for you? Can I put in a good word for you with the king or command of the army? She replied, I am quite secure. Now he basically says, what can I do for you? Like, I can't really provide you any blessings because you're already really wealthy. Can I put a good word in for you with the king and like get you like well positioned with him? The king owes me. I just defeated Moab for him. And she answers by I'm well secure, meaning I'm already really politically well connected. I don't need a word with the king. Later we're going to see her and she's just going to walk right into the king's presence and says, I want my land back. Okay, so she has no problem throwing her weight around, um, politically speaking. So she says, I'm good. And she walks away. So he asked his servant Gehazi, what can I do for her? Gehazi replied, she has no son and her husband is old. And Elisha told him, ask her to come here. So he did so. And she came and stood in the doorway. And he said, about this time next year, you will be holding a son. And she said, No, my master, O prophet, do not lie to your servant. The woman did conceive, and at the specified time, the next year, she gave birth to a son, just Elisha had told her. Now, in the service, this sounds really awesome. But when you're really digging deep, you realize he never actually asked God. First, it's Gehazi who comes up with this idea. He makes an assumption that she needs a kid. And then Elisha, without consulting God, says, you're going to have a kid. And then she even says, like, "Eh, don't do that to me. Don't mess with me. Now, if she really wanted a kid, and I'm not saying she didn't, we don't know. But if she really wanted a kid, she probably would have asked for it. Or she would have been like, oh, my gosh, thank you, God. But everything here is just off. And this is really hard to know what's going on. 
Like there could be a sense of hubris because here's the thing. She is being hospitable to him. And when people are hospitable to you, it's considered rude to think that you have to repay them in their own house. But in the ancient world, there's also this concept that you might be afraid that you're in their their debt and you'll owe them. And so there's a good chance. Well, one, we know for a fact, culturally speaking, Elisha has incredibly been rude and insulted her in her own house by saying, I need to repay you for your hospitality to me in my house. That'd be like going to a friend. Friends like, come over for dinner. You come over. We'll have a meal. This will be so much fun. And like they bring you over and they make a meal and you kind of watch a movie together and they get some wine and you have a great talk and all this kind of stuff. And you pull out a $50 bill and say, hey, this will cover the meal and the firewood and the wine. That would be incredibly insulting. And that's kind of what Elisha is doing here. And it means that he might be afraid that he is going to be indebted to her and he'll have to owe her something. Now, maybe with anybody else, he may not fear that. But with a wealthy, politically well-connected woman... He might be thinking in her world, politically connected people are all about you owe me, right? And she might call in her marker one day and he doesn't want that. And so he's trying to rebalance the scales, which is incredibly rude, incredibly rude. And he doesn't consult God on this. To make it even more confusing, God actually grants that and gives her a child. You're like, okay, now what's going on? It could be that God is just blessing her because... Elijah made a promise. Now, Elisha is not directly disobeying God because God never said, you shouldn't say this. If God said, do not offer that to her, and he did it, that would be a direct disobedience. But Elisha is just offering something that God has neither said anything about. The only thing I can possibly think of is either we're misreading this whole passage, which is totally possible, because Elisha is more mysterious than even Elijah was. And there's still a lot about the culture we don't know. Or the other possibility could be that this is affecting her too. And she's an innocent bystander. And Elisha has just made a promise to her. And remember, this is the word of the prophet. And that's as good as Yahweh's word. And so maybe God in his compassion says, because this is not her fault. And she already said, don't get my hopes up. Yahweh as a compassionate father can't bear to crush her hopes. And so he grants the request. But it does not mean that it was okay for Elisha to offer that. That's the only way that I can seem to understand it in this particular context. That doesn't mean I'm I'm absolutely right. It's just that's the way that I can only see it happening here. But either way, there is definitely a cultural, political, indebted dance that's going on here that can put you on the wrong side. 18. Elisha stepping out of bounds... And his hubris hubris seems to be emphasized what happens next. The boy grew, and one day he went out to see his father, who was with him in the harvest working. And he said to the father, My head, my head! And his father told his servant, Carry him to his mother. And so he picked him up and took him to his mother. He sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. The father has no idea. This could have just been normal. I mean, you guys know how headaches work. I mean, a headache could be just normal headache, or it could be a brain tumor. You never know, because you can't see what's going on. And if you've ever had migraines and that kind of stuff, it could just be a migraine, or it could be something really serious. But the father's just thinking it's hot in the fields, the kid's overworked, take him in the house, let him cool down with his mom. And little does he know, by the end of the day, he's dead. Something really serious has happened. 
Now remember, this is the child that Elisha promised. And this is the child that God granted. And in some ways, her hopes have been gotten up and now they've been crushed. Because you don't promise somebody a child just to kill them in their childhood. Verse 21, she went up and laid him down on the prophet's bed. She shut the door behind her and left. And she called her husband, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so I can go see the prophet quickly and then return. He said, why do you want to go see him today? Is it not a new moon or a Sabbath? She said, everything is fine. And she saddled the donkey and told her servant, lead on. Do not stop unless I say so. Now, she basically takes the child up to the prophet's bed and locks it. And then she says, I'm going to see the prophet. Now, the husband's really confused right now. There is nothing in the text that seems to suggest that he actually knows his son is dead. We don't know. He may have know it. Why is she putting him in the prophet's room and locking the door? Maybe she's hiding this from the husband to save him from the mourning because she expects the prophet to do something about it. Knows her tenacity. She is like, I am going to the prophet. And when she gets to the prophet, she's going to be like, you promised me. She's going to hold him to the fire on this. So she goes off and he says, where are you going all by yourself to see a prophet? She's like, I'm just going to see him. He says, it's not a Sabbath or moon festival. It is not the only time that women ever left without a male figure, the house, and went off somewhere on their own is during festivals. And they would hook up with other women and go together. It is not safe. Even a prominent, politically well-connected woman does not go all by herself into the middle of nowhere as a woman. It's not wise for a man to go by himself in this world. And so he's like, look, there's not a festival, which means you're not hooking up with other women, and you're going off by yourself like, what the heck is going on? He seems confused. She's like, never mind, I'll be back. Communication. <laughs> so she saddled her donkey and left. Verse 25. So she went to visit the prophet at Mount Carmel, and when he said, saw her at a distance, he said to the servant Gehazi, look, it's a Shunammite woman. Now run to meet her and ask her, are you well? Are you, you with, are your husband and the boy well? He doesn't know what's going on. This is the one of the very few times that Yahweh has kept him in the dark. He always, him and Elijah always know everything that's happening before it happens. In fact, the next in couple of scenes, he's going to know what's happening before it even happens. He knows about Naaman coming to the king before it happens. He knows about Jehoram sending soldiers to kill him before it happens. He knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. And yet he's completely in the dark. Almost like God is trying to humble him. He stepped out of line and offers something he shouldn't. And God is now going to humble him. So he doesn't have any idea what's going on. But notice too, he won't even go out himself. He's sending Gehazi. We've never seen prophets speak to other people through their servants. The prophets always connect to the people. And yet he's always doing this through the servants, almost like he's starting to get a position of power too. She told Gehazi everything is fine. She refuses to talk to Gehazi. But when she reached the prophet on the mountain, she grabbed a hold of his feet. And Gehazi came near to push her away, but the prophet said, leave her alone, for she is very upset. And Yahweh has kept the matter hidden from me. Now he specifically says it. I don't understand. My eyes, the spiritual realm, have been shut. In the language of the prophets, he's blind. And blindness is always associated with stubbornness and sin and judgment. She said, did I ask my master for a son? No, I did not. Didn't I say, don't mislead me? Yes, I did. 
Elisha told Gehazi, tuck in your robes into your belt and take my staff and go. Don't stop to exchange greetings with anyone. Place my staff on the child's face. The mother of the child said, as certainly as Yahweh lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So Elisha got up and followed her back. So he sends Gehazi on, saying, you do the, the resurrection. Now, once again, it's like, why is he sending somebody else? Could it be a test? Like when Elijah was testing Elisha by throwing the cloak on him and going by? Could he be trying to do the same thing with Gehazi? Are you the prophet that will succeed me? I succeed Elijah. Maybe God's doing a new thing and I'll have a prophet that succeeds me. Could it be that he's still saying, I'm not going to go there and do this because I don't want her to, I don't want to be indebted to her. We don't know. This is just really confusing and weird, but there's something definitely not right. The fact that this doesn't match up with any other story in the entire Bible and the way that cultural customs normally happen and the fact that he seems to be in the dark of what's going on and he is unwilling to personally get involved, yet he personally gets involved with every other thing before this and after this. So, so something's really going on weird and the only thing that is different here is that we have a politically well-connected woman involved. There might even be some prejudice here going on that I deal with the husband. I don't know. Maybe I only dealt with the widow because the husband was dead. This could be God humbling him. And he knows he's still not going to God. And Yahweh has not been mentioned once yet. And whenever we see that with David and other people, they're showing something's wrong here. Something is off. So something is definitely not right here. And God's not involved like he normally is. Normally Elisha says, thus saith Yahweh. He never said that. Usually he goes to God, or Yahweh sends him. or like, Nothing is happening here. There's definitely a game of chess that seems to be happening between him and the woman that we kind of understand, but knows that she's doing politically the same thing. She's insulting him. She busted in his home without permission. She's basically saying, you insulted me in my home, I'm going to insult you back. And now she's saying, and you're not leaving my sight until you honor your promise. Gehazi goes along. Finally, only when she says, I'm not leaving you, does Elijah say, okay, fine, I'll go with you. Like, if you're not going to leave me, woman, then I've got to get you out of my life, so I'll go with you. Verse 31, Gehazi went on ahead of them, and he placed the staff on the child's face, but there was no sound, no response. When he came back to Elisha, he told him the child did not wake up. Now, notice Elisha passed the test of God. He was able to see the spiritual realm and he was able to wield the power of the cloak in part of the Jordan River. Yet, Gehazi cannot wield the power of the staff. And this way, God is kind of showing Gehazi is not going to succeed Elisha. Because this is not God's new norm for prophets. You're an exception, Elisha. Gehazi will not succeed, and we'll see that later. Gehazi has definitely disqualified himself. He is not going to be the next prophet in any kind of a way. When Elisha arrived in the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in by himself and closed the door, and then he prayed to Yahweh. This is the first time. And it could be just like David was doing everything in his power to run his castle. He was fleeing from Absalom. He was completely desperate. He was sending like CI agents back to the palace to keep tabs on everything. He's doing all these things, and nothing is working. And finally, Ittai the Gittite comes to him and says, God's with you. And I will go wherever you go because Yahweh is with you. And David's like, oh, <laughs> I should be going to God. And now Elisha has finally been humbled. 
he, he, he maybe has realized, I offered something that I couldn't fulfill. God granted the request, and, but now the kid is dead. My servant can't heal him. I have no idea spiritually what's going on. I can't see the answer anymore. God is not speaking to me. Oh, God, I need help. And for the first time, he humbles himself, and he cries out to God. And God has humbled him. He got a little cocky. And we've mentioned this with Elijah. It is, look, we're all guilty of this. When you become very successful and very good in what you do, even in a ministry of God, we are humans. And our default nature as sinners is autonomy and pride. And it is very easy and very tempting to start getting prideful. Yeah, I really am that good. I'm a, I'm a good carpenter. I'm a good businessman. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good prophet. I'm a good running. I run administrator of ministries. And it's easy to start getting cocky. and You start depending on God less and less and less. And you always can see God saying, oh, no, you're not going to do that, my prophet. You are the prophet of God, and I cannot afford another Elijah. <laughs> and I'm going to humble you right now and here. And Elisha cries out to God. He got up on the bed, spread out his body over the boy, just like Elijah, the body-to-body contact, mimicking pulling him out of the grave. He put his mouth on the boy's mouth, his eyes over the boy's eyes, and palms on the hands against the boy's palms. He went down over him, and the boy's skin grew warm. This would defile Elijah. Elijah. Touching a dead body defiles you. Now with Elijah touching the boy, it didn't seem to be an issue because the boy had just died. And the Elijah went up very quickly after that, within minutes. Sorry. Elijah quickly went up to that room within minutes. So the boy still would have been warm. And it wouldn't be considered as defiling. And Elijah wasn't getting all arrogant and prideful. But now you have Elijah who's arrogant and prideful. And this boy has been dead in that bed for several days because it would take a couple days to get there at least and a couple days to get back. And the skin is now cold. And touching this now, according to the Levitical law, would defile him. So God is now humbling him even more. You are now defiled and unclean. And you're not going to be able to go into the temple. And you're not going to be able to make sacrifices for at least seven days. God is putting him in his place. Elisha went back and walked around in the house. And then he got up on the bed again and bent down over the him. And the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And notice when the child started getting warm, he still didn't come back to life. And then Elisha is walking around. Notice that he's having to do a lot more than Elijah. It's almost like God's saying, I'm going to make you work on, you're going to have to work at this one. And it's almost like, why is he walking around? Like we get the whole lying in his body. Elijah did that. It seems to be the all epic of pulling him out of the grave. Only Yahweh can do that. But the whole walking around and all that kind of stuff, my guess, maybe he's just pacing. Like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Nothing's working. The boy's, the boy's warm now. Which means he's just like mostly dead, but not all dead. But I can't get him all alive. Okay? There might be that sense there. And then all of a sudden he goes back and God's like, okay, now you've been humbled. You've cried out to me. You realize that this is not your power or your prerogative. I'm going to now finish it. And you can almost imagine Elisha's long journey back home thinking, Got a lot to think about. And the boy came alive and sneezed seven times. Now, sneezing in the ancient world was a symbol of like you're, in, in some ways, are right. You're considered unclean with spiritual beings. 
So sneezing, that's why they would say, God bless you, because you're sneezing the demons out of your body. And in some ways, they're kind of right. It's just called viruses and bacteria. They're just like microbe demons in your body. So they were kind of right, but not exactly. But the seven times means completion, meaning that whatever was in him is completely gone and out now, and there's no risk of him dying or relapsing again. He called for a Gehazi and said, get the Shunammite woman, so he did. Now at this point, he might be embarrassed to face her completely. And he said to her, take your son. And she came in and fell at his feet and bowed down, and she picked up her son and left. God is warning him. Do not become like another Elijah. Do not become full of hubris and pride. I have given you, Elijah, great power and great authority. And I have given you a double authority and a double portion of the Spirit of God. And it has started to go to your head. And you're now starting to speak outside of my permission. And you're not consulting me. And what is an incredible miracle of God that is happening here, and it's an incredible act of grace and mercy that God is providing this woman, at the same time that he's being gracious and merciful to this woman, he's also teaching Elisha a humble a lesson of humility. And this is where we've got to be reminded that, yes, they are prophets, and, yes, amazing men like David are kings, And yes, Abraham was incredibly righteous. But remember, these stories are also full of their brokenness and fallenness because all have sinned and fallen the short of glory of God. And in the end, these people are still just men and women. And we do a disservice of not recognizing their great faith and not recognizing the commitment that they had to Yahweh in the amazing way that he used them but we also do a disservice by also putting them on pedestals and acting like they were these amazing men and women in themselves. And the truth is in the tension. The truth is in the tension. And this is what God is communicating because there's only one that is going to be above them all and will surpass them, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you don't pick up on these huge failures of these men and women in the Bible, then you will not appreciate how awesome Jesus truly is when he comes along in the narrative. But at the same time, we don't need to rip them apart and shred them and bash them to overly drive the message for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because remember, God still did amazing things with them, and they did demonstrate great acts of faith, and God did say things like, Moses is phenomenal, but Jesus is superior. Chapter 4, verse 38. Now Elisha went back to Gilgal. While there was a famine in the land, some of the prophets were visiting him. This is the sons of the prophets. And he told his servant, put on a big pot on the fire and boil some stew for the prophets. Someone went out into the field to gather some herbs and found a wild vine. He picked some of its fruit, enough to fill up the fold of his robe, and he came back and cut up and threw the slices in the stew pot, not knowing whether they were harmful or not. Famine's probably so bad they're just desperate for anything that looks edible. The stew was poured out for all the men to eat, and when, they, when some of the stew, sorry, for all the eat and some of the stew, they cried out, Death, O man of God, there's death in the pot. 
He said, get some flour. Then he threw it into the pot and said, now pour some out for the men so they may eat. And there was no longer anything harmful in the pot. Is that this is the best anti-drug campaign I've ever seen. Man of God, there's death in the pot. They're basically eating this thing, and it's enough to make them really sick. Sick enough that they think that they're dying or whatever. So he immediately takes flour, and he throws it into the pot, and it purifies it. So this is another case where he's protecting them and taking care of them. Now, flour, just like salt earlier, doesn't seem like a practical way to purify things. But once again, flour is a symbolic of life. And this could be probably connected to the provision of God in the wilderness when he provided them bread in the wilderness, which then ties into the next story in verse 42 when it says, Now a man from Baal Shalishah brought some food for the prophet, 20 loaves of bread made from the first fruits of the barley harvest, as well as fresh ears of grain. Elisha said, Set it before the people so they may eat. But his attendant said, How can I feed a hundred people? A hundred men with this, he replied. Set it before the people so they may eat it, for this is what Yahweh says. They will eat and have some flour, some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, just as Yahweh predicted. Now this story reminds us of Jesus multiplying the bread. However, for everybody who witnessed Jesus do that, Jesus reminds them of Elisha multiplying the bread. And so this is basically Elisha reminding them that God is still their provider. And just as he provided bread in the wilderness for them and maintained their physical life, God is still at work doing that. He's still at work in their lives, reminding of who he is. And once again, when we get to the prophets, you're going to see that when God does the exile, he's going to repeat many, 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 many things that he has done in the past for them. And by doing these things over and over and over again, he's reminding them that he is still the same God now, that he was back then, and that he's still interested in providing for them and making provisions for them. But Christ, when he comes along, he is going to do it even greater and bigger and go even further. And once again, where Elisha is multiplying the bread, Christ is going to multiply it to a far greater extent, but he's also going to say, I am the bread of life. So where Elisha is only mediating the provision of God, Christ is saying, I am the provision of God. And so he goes in that way, he becomes a greater and a superior Elisha.